Part 4. The Game. Chapter 26. The Gatekeeper. A glinting slick of oil surged upriver on the morning tide and was swept back down towards Dublin Bay in a flood of polluted rain. Gary lined his station on the apex of the Haypenny Bridge with cardboard and sat, cross-legged in his sleeping bag, watching the daily battle of the river and the sea. It was against his principles to beg. His breakfast arrived in stages with the commuting workers, a partially eaten croissant and a styrofoam mug of coffee, almost full, smeared with lipstick on the rim. Gary tasted it, detected hazelnut syrup and dipped. The scavenging seagulls, more rapacious than ever, circled his drafty post. Gary was fifteen. Back in the prosperity, his parents had a house in the suburbs and golf club membership. His dad worked as a stockbroker, his true nature concealed beneath a veneer of money. When this was gone, he proved even nastier than Gary had suspected. Now, Gary's mum lived in the women's shelter, and Gary slept wherever was working out for him that night. His mum didn't want him around. She said he was too much like his dad. Gary thought that she was probably right, but he knew that he needed that edge. Very few people... Gary maintained, actually saw him. Still fewer stopped to speak. But most of those who did asked him why he hadn't chosen a more sheltered spot. Gary had taken to replying that the Haypenny Bridge was a gateway between the worlds and that he was the gatekeeper. It was such a good story that he had almost come to believe it himself and it got rid of the do-gooders nicely. Except for Arthur, the goateed owner of the Pagemaster bookshop, who had remarked that this was one of several possible scenarios. Gary liked Arthur, who supplied him with a steady stream of 20th century sci-fi novels, many of which described dystopias that were not dissimilar to the one they were actually living in. He had come to believe that some of these books, if not actually prophetic, contained an element of foresight. This is why, when a couple of aliens manifested on the bridge beside him, Gary was much less surprised than he might have been. Deep in his imagined role as the gatekeeper, he'd almost been expecting them. They were tall, covered in a fine pelt of dark brown hair and wore long sleeveless jerkins that seemed to be lined with fur. Their feet were large, bare and very obviously not human. Gary jumped to his feet and held out his hand. Good morning, I'm Gary. They surveyed his outstretched hand in bewilderment, clutching their fighting sticks and conferred in a language that sounded like birdsong. One of them hung back, clearly nervous, the other advanced with a sweeping bow. The gatekeeper... Gary nodded solemnly. The alien retreated, 
noticing that the band of beaten gold that he had previously worn around his wrist was now in the gatekeeper's possession. My fee, Gary explained, fastening the bracelet around his skinny arm. He indicated the other, who was still wearing his jewellery, and nodded munificently. Keep that for the journey home. The pair looked around, disorientated, at tall buildings, the shanty town along the boardwalk, and the cars rumbling along the quays. Gary, who had a strong sense of fairness, decided that having taken the payment, he now had a duty of care. He packed up his cardboard seat and pulled his sleeping bag around his shoulders. Allow me to show you the way. Where is Leah Lawless? Leah was a reliable source of food and books, but Gary hadn't seen her for several days, and, although he had a number of phones, recently relieved from their rightful owners, he didn't have a number for her. He thought about it for a moment. Arthur might know. Considering the strangeness of their appearance, the aliens were attracting relatively little attention, but Gary still felt that they needed to be removed from the public eye. Arthur, who rarely surfaced before noon, was sleepily raising the shutters on his shop front. Come on, said Gary, fighting an instinct to take them by the hand that was borne out seconds later when both attempted to cross the road without waiting for the traffic to stop. He grabbed their garments and pulled hard, saving them both from instant death. Haven't you ever seen a road before? They looked at him blankly. Gary indicated the street crossing. Red man means stop, green man means go. Arthur, arranging books behind the counter, seemed to register Gary's presence in the shop without looking up. Stay where you are, young fella, and keep your hands where I can see them. I have a couple of lads here looking for Leah. Accustomed to deflecting the bailiff, Arthur turned the page of his book. Not here. Don't have a contact number. The more confident of the beings advanced. My name is Trian and this is my brother, Aid. We are looking for Leah Lawless. Arthur looked up and met two pairs of unblinking amber eyes. It was amazing what they could do with contact lenses. Spectacular, he muttered. Wrong place for the cosplay convention, though. He went back to his book. We have news of her brother. That, of course, was an entirely different matter. Like everyone in the building, Arthur knew about Ronan's disappearance. Back in the Prosperity, the warehouse had been his office and the headquarters of Lola's design. Arthur dialed Leah's number. She answered on the second ring. Everything okay? Arthur reassured her. All well. I have a couple of odd bods here. Say they know something about Ronan. Should I put you on? The phone quacked excitedly as he held it out. Trian and Aid jumped back in fright. Gary, who'd understood their need for operating instructions, explained. Guys, this is called a phone. It's a way of sending your voice across long distances. He took the phone and spoke into it. Leah, Gary from the bridge. 
remember? So, these lads turn up looking for you. From another world, like. A pair of aliens, totally fucking helpless. So just go easy on them, right? He handed the phone to Trian, indicating the correct way to hold it. The conversation proceeded in fits and starts. Eventually, Trian handed the phone back to Arthur. Arthur, Leah said, they do know something about Ronan, but I can't work out what. I'm stuck in Limerick and I can't come up. Oh no, I'm fine, it's just the quarantine. Can you stay with them until I can get in touch with Martha? Leah had passed a restless night. Ethan Blake, who barely admitted an acquaintance with her brother, had actually brought him to Carmoyle. Moreover, after checking in the diary from the year in question, Kit confirmed that the visit had been on the day that Ronan had disappeared. They had travelled down from Dublin that morning, in Ethan Blake's car, and eaten lunch with Kit and John Reardon. What did they talk about? Kit shrugged. Nothing special. Plans for the house. As far as she could remember, Ethan Blake had been in visionary mode, projecting future plans for Carmoyle. Your brother said the same as you. The house needs an engineer to look at it. But I wasn't listening closely. And then? Then they went off to have a look around the grounds. That, Leah recalled, had been before rainfall. The land was polluted, but not actually dead, invasive species propagating quietly in the wings. Kit had not seen them leave. That meant, if you discounted that unconfirmed sighting at Dublin Airport, Ethan Blake was the last person to have seen Ronan. There was a writing desk by Leah's bedside, utterly unsuited for the use of communications technology, upon which she perched her laptop to compose an email to Ethan Blake. You treacherous cunt. Why didn't you tell me that you brought my brother to Carmoyle? What happened after you left? Where did you take him? And why did you conceal this from me and my family? My parents have endured more than two years of anguish. What are you playing at? Your behaviour is fucking inexcusable. Leah Lawless. She pressed send before she could think better of it. The glyph manifested by her bedside. Actionable in several directions, that email. What do you want? Leah asked coldly. I have accessed the hard drive of the vehicle. Why should I give a shit? It is the same vehicle in which your brother travelled with Ethan Blake, said the glyph, citing the date and time of travel. And? The car returned to Dublin with a single passenger. At first it seemed an advantage that Leah could say whatever she liked to the glyph without risk of hurting its feelings. She ranted, cursed and threatened to no avail. Either the glyph had nothing more to offer or she did not have the means of extracting the information. Go piss up a rope, she muttered, removing her glasses and putting them back in their case. There was an old-fashioned china ewer and basin on the washstand. Leah poured a little water into the bowl and splashed it on her face. The skin under her eyes felt hot and raw. 
She poured a glass of water from the little flask on her bedside table and drank. The house was quiet, with no sound of its current or former inhabitants, and a cockroach patrolled the perimeter of the room at an unhurried pace. The ghost is not abroad tonight, Leah thought. She found a hot water bottle, curled around it, and slept. She woke in the dark to the sound of a reedy piping voice close to her ear. My Aunt Jane, she took me in, gave me tea in her wee tin, half a bap with sugar on the top, and three wee sweetie bowls after that. Thomas squatted on the bedside rug, totally absorbed in a game of jackstones. Leah watched from under half-closed eyelids as he tossed one pebble into the air and gathered the others before it hit the ground. The room was cold, and he was wearing only a dirty white nightshirt. The back of his neck showed traces of sunburn and dirt. Should you not be in bed? she whispered. Fivesies, said Thomas, gathering the scattered stones in a remarkable display of dexterity and skill. I win. He held out the stones to Leah in a small grubby hand. Your turn. Leah shook her head. Too sleepy. Come on, I'll take you back to your own bed. We can play in the morning. She pulled on a jumper and found her slippers under the bed. Are you not cold? Thomas pocketed the stones and put his icy hand in hers. He had the sweetest smile, she thought, even if he did keep waking her up in the middle of the night. You're freezing. As he led her into the hallway, Leah realised that she must be dreaming. They were in a different house, similar in some ways, but without a carpet or pictures on the wall. She followed Thomas up a spiral staircase into a large vaulted room, a smouldering pile of turf in the fireplace, and a row of small four-poster beds with pillars twisted like barley sugar sticks and tented canopies of yellow and black. Leah glanced around the room. The walls were painted with figures. Death, skeletal on a white horse, faced a knight in full armour. The knight was grim-faced and armed with a long spear, his eyes sat on some invisible horizon. His horse was armoured too, and a lean hand lay at his feet. On the opposite wall, a demonic, cloven-hoofed creature leered from behind the bed. Leah shivered. Who are they? Thomas pointed. That's Sintram, that's death, and that's the devil. Do they not give you nightmares? Thomas nodded solemnly. Oh, they do. They move when no one's watching. Only I can see them. Leah glanced over her shoulder. The devil flickered his forked tongue. No wonder you can't sleep. Thomas tugged her hand. This is my bed. There were no sheets or pillows, but she tucked him in under a stiff woolen blanket. Leah sat on the edge of the bed. Once upon a time... There were three little badgers. Almost instantly Thomas was asleep. She paused for a moment, wondering if her father had ever got more than five minutes into the story. She could only remember the beginning. 
If Thomas stayed awake for longer, she would have to make it up. She leant over and kissed his forehead as he slept and went back down the staircase in the hope that the dream would allow her to retrace her steps 